This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Shukumar. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I was excited to dig in with you here. Um, you've got a, a fascinating story from, uh, you know, coming all the way from India and, and you know, making your presence here and building a life here. And, and the amount of people that you've been able to impact uh, is, is really why I've been really so excited to have you on. But one thing that really struck me, Shukumar, is that you were studying business in you know, Columbia Business School and I want to know how someone that was studying, in, you know, in Columbia Business School can go and transition now into teaching people and you know, the millions of people that you've been able to impact on how to be happy. Like, where does that transition come from? <laughs> That's a long story, Sean. But let me, let me give you the short version of it. Uh, I came to do my PhD at Columbia, and to be very honest, I was not really interested in doing a PhD, but I was very interested in coming to America. And there were many great universities. Columbia was one of them that said, dear Mr. Rao, please come do PhD. We will give you a fellowship. That means money. So I said, that's a good idea. I come to America on somebody else's nickel. Let's do it. So that's what happened. So I got my PhD and I went out and uh, started working in corporate America. And initially, I was hugely successful. My career took off like a rocket. But I got burnt out by corporate politics. So I figured I have a PhD. Let me go into universities where there is no politics and everybody's imbued with a quest for pure knowledge. That was not true. I was very mistaken. Politics is alive and well in universities. I think it was Henry Kissinger who said the reason politics is so vicious in universities is because the stakes are so small. Hmm. And he absolutely got that right. But, you know, I made the transition. I discovered politics is alive and well. And then I stagnated. I was feeling very sorry for myself. I had such a great career and I threw it all away. And now I've wasted my life and I'm burnt out. My colleagues who remained in the corporate world went on and achieved great financial freedom and, you know, positions of power in the hierarchy. And here I was stuck in a university. And I was really feeling sorry for myself. How old were you at this time? Uh, that would have been in my late 20s, early 30s. Okay. Early gotcha. 30s. Okay. And uh, all my life I'd been doing a lot of reading, spiritual biography, mystical autobiography would take me to a wonderful place and I came back to the real world and it sucked. So I remember thinking if all of this is useful, only if you're sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the early burly, then it's useless. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew it was very valuable. In fact, maybe the only thing that was valuable, I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. So one day I came up with my bright idea, which is why don't I take the teachings of the world's greatest masters, strip them of religious, cultural, and other connotations, and adapt them so that they're acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society. And the thought of doing that made me come alive. Hmm. So I created that course for me. You know, I just needed to have that. 
And it did very well. I moved it to Columbia Business School in 1999, and it exploded. It's the only course at Columbia, which is a university-wide draw. Can, can you sp- specify exactly, break down what that course, you, you, you briefly went through it, but I want to just emphasize that. So you took the greatest minds that... I took teachings of the world's... See, what happened is the world's greatest masters completely understood the human predicament, and they came up with solutions which have been tested over millennia, and they work. The problem is that they used language and examples that were pertinent to the time and the geography that they were in. Mm. And modern people don't necessarily relate to that. So what I did is I took those concepts, stripped them of religious and other connotations, and adapted them with new examples pertinent to a a very intelligent person in a post-industrial society. And I've taught in some of the most trying environments you can imagine, trying meaning tough environments, major business schools, uh, uh, Fortune 100 corporations, and they work. Mm -hmm. So my job, if you will, is a translator. The concepts are not mine. These are the concepts of the great masters. That's why I can say, you take my program, you do the exercises, your life will change. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You do the exercises conscientiously, your life will change. That's because of where I draw my material from. I'm just a translator. Sure. Can, can you give me an example of one of the figures that you admired that you've been able to translate into modern language, I guess you could say, to make oh, it more... Oh, 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 all kinds. Uh Look, let's take great teacher. Let's take Jesus, for example, who was a great teacher. And there is the tale of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, there's a guy who's going by and you know, he, the people pass by the guy who's sick, but this guy comes and helps out. And people say, hey, that's a very nice thing. But I have in my program something called the other-centered universe. And in what happens in the other-centered universe is I stress that all of us live in a me-centered universe. And by that, what I mean is no matter what happens, we immediately translate it to what's the impact on me. So your partner gets a great job offer and you think, how's this going to affect our relationship? Your daughter drops out of high school to begin an in-depth exploration of controlled substances and you go, what will they think about my parenting? And... Is rehab covered by insurance? No matter what happens, we bring it down very quickly to what's the impact on me. And I say that if that's where you live in a me-centered universe, you are going to live essentially a mediocre existence punctuated with flashes of pleasure. And I got a bunch of exercises where people can discover it for themselves. But, you know, the Good Samaritan was has been around for how long? Thousands of years? It just hasn't been presented in the fashion in which I presented. And I don't even refer, to be honest, to where these ideas come from, Mm -hmm. because it's irrelevant where they came from. What is relevant is what it is and does it work. So I have borrowed freely from the world's great wisdoms traditions right through. Another very powerful one is the tale of uh, the second arrow. Have you heard about that, Sean? I haven't. Please share. This is a very, very powerful teaching. And this one comes from the Buddha. The Buddha asked Ananda, his, uh, uh, one of his disciples, principal disciple, and he said, hey, Ananda, if an arrow were to hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? 
kind of the nods his head. Yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow would hit you exactly where the first arrow hit you, wouldn't it be even more painful? And the Nazis said, yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. Now, the Buddha asked, why then do you shoot the second arrow? <laughs> now, that is somewhat confusing. So let me explain with a story. There was a woman, and she was a very good mother. And she had a son who grew up, turned 16, got his provisional driver's license. And one day he comes up to his mom and says, hey, mom, I'm getting together with a bunch of my friends. And I like to take the car. And the mom says, of course not. You know, you're can't drive by yourself. Uh, where do you have to go? I'll drop you. He says, no, no, mom, you don't understand. It's very important that I take the car. It's very important that you not be there. And the mom says, of course not. If I can't be there, that's fine. There's Uber, there's Lyft for you. No, 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 mom, you don't understand. I have to take the car and you have to not be there. And the mom says, no. But you know how children are. He begged, he pleaded, he, you know, wheedled. And bit by bit, she started giving way. And she took promises for him. No drinking. Yes, yes, no, no drinking, no beer. You're going to call. Yes, I call. That you'll be back home by 10 o'clock. Yes. And finally, reluctantly, she gives him the car keys. And of course, the moment he gets the car keys, he forgets everything he said, has too many beers, doesn't call home, misses the curfew. On his way back, he has a serious accident, has to be operated on. And the mother is in the hospital, you know, outside the operating room. And then he's moved to the recovery room. She dashes home to have a quick showers and change so she can go back to the hospital. And then a friend calls. And a friend says, how could you possibly have let him take the car? How could you be so stupid? You're not a mother. You're a murderer. Now, you're probably shocked that a friend would say something like that to her at this juncture. But you'd probably be less shocked if I told you it wasn't what a friend told her. It's what she told herself. Hmm. That is the second arrow. It's bad enough having a son who's had a serious accident and isn't the, you know, has been operated on, may or may not recover, who knows. Does it help to tell herself that she's a lousy mother? In fact, she's not even a lousy mother, she's a murderer. Does it help in any way? We do it all the time. That is the second arrow, and the second arrow is always delivered by means of mental chatter. So these are the ways in which I take the teachings of the world's great masters and adapt it now. And I can tell, uh, you know, I, I had a uh, entire mergers and acquisitions team of a major uh, investment bank in one of my workshops. And I said that, and I told them, hey, listen, whatever situation you're facing, your mental chatter about the situation makes it an order of magnitude worse. And the head of that division told me, Professor Rao, you're so true, and he narrated a tale. Uh, what happened is that uh, they were bidding on a very, very big project. It's a, a hostile acquisition and uh, several billion dollars. So it was the biggest deal that had come their way this year. And obviously, for a deal that big, there was a lot of competition. So somebody on the team suggested a strategy which was somewhat risky, unproven, untested, but, you know, was kind of pushing the boundary. And the client was a very conservative client. So they debated, should we present this strategy or should we not present this strategy? After much debate, some said you shouldn't and some said let's go ahead. And eventually, you know, they decided to present it and they did. Mm -hmm. And right after they presented it, the client dropped off a cliff. 
would not return phone calls, was not available for meetings, would not reply to emails. And, you know, internally in their investment bank division, they went to war. There were people saying, I told you, you shouldn't have presented this. And no, no, it was the only way. And they were fighting and they almost fractured. And uh, then 10 days later, they got a call from the client. It turned out there was some internal decision, dissension within the board. And they went to an offsite to sort it out. And once they did that, they came back and, you know, the CEO of the company called and said, oh, by the way, you know, you presented something interesting the last time and we're not sure whether we really understood it. Would you please come back and explain it to us again? Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, the mental chatter in the minds of the investment bankers, you know, they were at war with each other. And they say, boy, can we relate to the second arrow? Sure. So the concepts of the great masters are incredibly relevant to life here now. I just translate. And do you use some of the teachings that some of these figures have done? You know, mental chatter is a problem that probably anyone listening to this can relate to, whether it's at 2 a.m. and those doubts come in and whether it's, the, the, the struggles they have because they failed at something once and they don't want to take that attempt again. Um, what are some of these things that you teach or questions or exercises to help reframe I frame that mindset? All of that in exercises that they can do. So I have sometimes I share the stories, sometimes I share the origin, sometimes I don't share the origin. It all depends on who the audience is and how I feel. Because I don't have a cookie cutter, this is the way I do it style. I basically tailor it uh, depending upon my reading of the audience and how ready they are. What is important is I give them concepts that are eminently practical and they can use. And is there an example of a exercise you do with a student uh, or people in your audience or questions that can help people listening to this now? reframe their mindset around that second arrow? Yes. Uh, One of the things that we do very often, Sean, is we stick a label on whatever happens to us. Now, let's assume something really bad happens to you. You, uh, you, You're fired from your job. You're a well-compensated person. You get fired from your job. And you say, oh, my God, this is tragic. Oh, I got fired. This is tragic. Actually your suffering doesn't begin when you get fired from your job. Your suffering begins when you decide that getting fired from your job is a terrible thing. It's bad. You get fired from your job. You've got a lot of spare spare time. Maybe you can look for a better one. Now you can explore other options. But you get fired from your job and you go, oh my God, what am I going to do? I've got mortgage payments to make. There are all these other things that I have to do. Now I can't, you know, will will the bank foreclose on my mortgage? This is bad. And the moment you decide this is bad, at that instant, suffering begins. Suffering doesn't begin at the instant an event occurs. Suffering begins the instant you decide that event is bad. It's terrible. You can't bear it. Now, there's a wonderful Sufi tale about this. It talks about a man and his son, and they lived in a beautiful valley, and they were very happy, but they were also dirt poor. And the man got sick and tired of being poor, and he decided he was going to become a rich man, and the way he chose was to breed horses. He bought a stallion. 
didn't have enough money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed very heavily from the neighbors. And the very day he got the stallion, he kicked the top bar loose from the paddock where he housed it and ran away. And all the neighbors came around saying, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away, and you still owe us money. You are screwed. Mm. And the man shrugged his shoulder and says, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses which were close to the man's place and he was able to entice them into the paddock which he had repaired so escape was no longer possible. And all of a sudden he had his stallion back plus a dozen wild horses. And by the standards of that village, that made him a wealthy man. And the neighbors came around and said, we thought you were destitute, but fortune has smiled upon you. How lucky you are. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The man and his son started to break the horses so they could sell them on the market. One of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg and it broke and it healed crooked. And the neighbors came around and said he was such a fine young lad and now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How sad. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. That summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country. And press gangs moved through the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men to serve in the army. But this man's son was spared because he had a crooked leg. And the neighbors were crying as they came around. We don't know if we'll ever see our sons alive again, but you still have your son. How fortunate you are. And he shrugged his shoulders and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows. And it goes on like that forever. Think back on your life. You're young. But in your young life, can you recall something that happened in your life that at the time it happened, you thought this is terrible, but you can now look back upon it and say, gee, that wasn't so terrible, or maybe even it was wonderful? Oh, yeah, yeah. Coming sure. to Brazil. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, in fact, I remember I was speaking before the Global Leadership Summit of the Entrepreneurs Organization. At this point, somebody in the back raised his hands and really made a ruckus, so I had to recognize him. And he said, Professor Rao, I've got a perfect example for you. Uh, it turned out he was a graduate from one of the top engineering schools in India, one of the IITs. He did a master's from Stanford, got a job with a tech company. All his friends got jobs with other tech companies. They were looking forward to carrying the friendship and uh, building the careers. But he had an immigration problem as a result of which he had to leave the country. And he was devastated. He thought his life was over. Uh, among other things, he had student debt. And when you have student debt in dollars and you're earning in rupees, Boy, you're in a very bad place. But he said, Professor Rao, as a result of that happening, I met this wonderful lady who is now my wife. I teamed up with two of my engineering college buddies, and we started a company, and it's going gangbusters. All our clients are in America. I come here at least six times a year. I have a picture-perfect life, and none of this would have happened if I had not been forced to leave the country. So if in your life, in the lives of everyone who's listening, you can imagine at least one instance where something happened that at the time it happened, you thought was terrible, but you can now look back and say, hey, it was wonderful. Is it possible that what you are today about to label bad could in next years turn out to be wonderful? Is it possible? Yeah. Just asking yourself that question will take you to a different emotional domain. And if you then ask yourself the next question, what is it that I can do proactively to make it a wonderful thing? And you move seamlessly from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. That's how you become incredibly resilient. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from adversity. What happens if you never label anything in adversity? You don't have to bounce back. Whatever happens, you say, this happened. Well, what do I do? And you never spend any time on a downward uh, uh, cycle. You never get depressed. You simply look at this happened. Now, what do I do? 
Yeah, yeah, I like that framework. So you're saying whenever something bad happens, the idea is for you to refer back to another poor perspective in your life that something bad, maybe worse, has happened, and you can tell yourself, "Hey, like I, I got over this. This is probably something similar, if not probably less severe than what I've been through." And in some ways, the worst things that you've gone through, the the the, the things that you've gone through. That have been severe or traumatizing, it generally means that in the future you're almost anti-fragile to these new things that are going to be appearing in your life. Compare itself, compare it to what happened in the past, or you know, this is a bigger magnitude or less magnitude. Don't even have to do that. Just say something bad happened to me in the past, and it turned out not to be bad at all. Similarly, this is happening. Before I label it bad, let me think about: Is it really bad? Mm-hmm. And uh, is there any possible way in which it could turn out to be terrific? And then, what can I do to make it terrific? And bingo! Yeah, you move from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. I think we're getting somewhere here. So the the things that we're talking about specifically seems to be around these unexpected events. Maybe a family member dies, or you get your, you lose your job. A lot of people have during these times. Illness, whatever, yeah. Illness, whatever it might happen. It's an event that's the happened. Pandemic. Uh, exactly, a pandemic. All of these unexpected things, and what you mentioned was very helpful for reframing our mindset. Now, there's a lot of people, probably a majority of the people, where nothing's really happened to them. You know, there there hasn't been this this life-changing event that could lead them into depression. A lot of people are just depressed. They're just, nothing's really happening for them, but because they compare themselves with other people, despite them living really happy, middle-class, you know, great lives, they're still depressed. So how do we help those people? How do we manage the expectations, uh, which is something that you teach? Uh, First of all, Depression is nothing but me-centered thinking. You're thinking about why is the universe not working out the way that I would like it to work out? It's never going to work out the way it's like it. I would like it to work out, and that is terrible, and you sink into depression. So the trick to combating depression is to be aware that depression is nothing but mental chatter running amok. Your mind painting all kinds of scenarios, none of which are likely. Mark Twain said it beautifully. It's a very funny saying, but it's also a very profound saying. Mm-hmm. I've suffered a great many tragedies in my life, most of which never happened. It's funny, but it's profound. That's what depressed people are. They've suffered a great many tragedies, most of which have never happened. Once you recognize that and you start working on your mental chatter, you'll find how easy it is to bounce back. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, Professor Rao, I used to be in therapy, but after I took your course, I I discontinued. I no longer have any need for therapy. Huh. And did they ever mention anything that's a specific lesson or question you've framed for them? Good thing, bad thing is one big part of it. Mm -hmm. Me-centered universe is another part of it. 
But overall, what happens is I don't look upon these as individual exercises. I look upon them as a process. I've got a whole bunch of exercises, many of which are laid out in my book, Are You Ready to Succeed? But when you go through and do all of the exercises, cumulatively, they change your worldview and how you look at the world. And as you change your worldview, you literally become a different person. And as you become a different person, both your thinking and your actions change organically. You don't have to force yourself to do anything. It just happens automatically and organically. And when you do that, you'll find that a whole host of things that used to trouble you don't trouble you at all anymore. Sure, sure. Yeah, so you're probably familiar with happiness equals uh, reality minus expectations. This is a pretty popular <laughs> equation that people use yeah. to frame happiness. Yeah. There's some probably loopholes there that I could pose uh, that I would love to talk about with you because you talk a lot about setting, you know, expectations realistically so that you're you're not expectations realistically. In mm-hmm. fact, I throw out the word realistic at all. Set a goal for yourself. Set an ambitious goal to yourself. Set a super ambitious goal for yourself. It's fine. Don't try to define reality by your limited thinking. Anything is possible shoot for the moon the problem is not shooting for the moon the problem is what do you do if you try your level best and you don't get there look here's the thing most of us live our lives the following way i set a goal for myself i worked very hard to achieve it i achieved the goal fantastic life's life's a blast or i set a goal for myself and i tried very hard to achieve it and i failed life sucks We live our lives oscillating on a sinusoidal curve between elation and despair, and we spend more time at the despair end of the spectrum. It's a lousy way to live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is an alternative, and the alternative is set a goal for yourself, as ambitious as you like. Go for the moon, go for the stars, and try your level best to achieve it. Once you have set the goal, however, forget about the goal. The goal is a destination. The destination is a mirage. You get there, you tarry a few minutes, and you're off someplace else. When you're obsessed about the destination, you miss the journey. And the journey is the only thing you have. The journey is with you always. Let me repeat that. The journey is with you always. The destination is a mirage. You get there carry a few minutes, you're off someplace else. Now, when you forget about the goal you've set for yourself, but pour all of your emotional energies into what are the actions that I have to take in order to achieve my goal, and that's what you focus on, then two things happen. One, you actually begin to enjoy the journey, and as I said, the journey is the only thing you have. And two, the probability that you will get to the destination you want actually increases. You know, people say, I want to climb Mount Everest. How much time do you spend on top of Mount Everest? A few minutes to a half hour max. You get up there, buddy takes a picture of you, your buddy gets up there, you take a picture of him, and then you're on your way down and you hope you don't get killed by an avalanche. Yeah. So if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you better enjoy the weeks and months of acclimatization on Base Camp 1, Base Camp 2, and so on. Same way in life. You set a goal for yourself, and you try your level best to achieve the goal. 
if you succeed, fantastic. If you don't succeed, fantastic. Because here's the mistake we make, Sean. We think the benefit of setting a goal and trying a level best to achieve the goal is achieving the goal. Not so. Achieving the goal is beyond your control. Any number of factors could overturn it. The benefit of setting a goal and trying your level best to achieve the goal is the learning and growth that happen in you and to you as you try your level best to achieve the goal. If you actually achieve the goal, that is a bonus. Be immensely grateful. If you don't achieve the goal, the learning and growth have already happened, so you're ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah, and you just set a bigger goal. Like the goals will always change, right? But the person that you become from achieving those will stay forever. So regardless of whether you win or lose, you're ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. So that's why, and I sum it up very nicely, invest in the process, do not invest in the outcome. Invest in the process, do not invest in the outcome. The outcome is beyond your reach. So don't limit your goals. By all means, have a super big goal. I dominate the world. Fine. Try your level best. What happens is not whether you set a big goal or a small goal. What happens is not whether you achieve it or not achieve it, but whatever the outcome, how do you deal with it? That is the key. Yeah. Now, for someone that is feeling a bit out of control um, over their lives, they don't feel like they have a lot of control. And perhaps they feel helpless or they feel that whatever they do, the universe is against them. You know, I've had those moments, those dark moments. I'm sure you have. There's a lot of people that have, uh, especially during the pandemic. You know, there, there's these times like that. You know, what are... What are what's something that you would say to them, or what are some advices, or or perhaps uh, exercises, or advices that you could provide for someone like in that situation? You never have control, Sean. Control is a myth; it's an illusion. You think you have control, but you never have control. You never had control. You do not have control, and you never will have control. And the sooner you accept that, the better. The only thing you have is the illusion of control. You do not have control. Even in the instances where you think you have control, it's not. It's an illusion. Somehow or other, any of the things that could have happened to derail you have not yet happened, okay? And better realize that. Most of us say, oh, I know I don't have control, but you know that intellectually at a very superficial level. Let me explain. You might say, you know, my marriage is kind of rocky and I'm not sure whether it'll survive or not. I don't have control. Or my son is a good student, but uh, his grades are not that high and I don't know if he'll get on to Harvard or not. I don't have control. Mm-hmm. When you say things like that, you still have in you embedded a system of this is the way the world is. And in that world, some things are given and okay and under your control. Like if you run out of toilet paper, you'll go to a supermarket and pick up a roll. If you're hungry and there's no food in the house, you'll go to your favorite restaurant and order from the menu. Now, as a result of the pandemic, even these things are suddenly not under your control. So it becomes 
possible for you. You learn at a very visceral level that you don't have control. And for some people who haven't thought about it, this is immensely, immensely destabilizing. And that's why they feel so bad. Yeah. But if you think about it, you'll realize you never had control. So what's the big deal about it? So the way I put it is, look, there is going to be a tsunami in your life. It's not a question of will there be. It's a question of when will it hit you? When a tsunami hits you, it's a wonderful idea for you to surf on it and say, what a beautiful ride I'm having, as opposed to getting drowned by it. But you can't learn to surf on a tsunami. If you want to surf the tsunami, you better start learning to surf on the two-foot waves, because if you become very good at surfing on the two-foot waves, then when the big wave hits, you've got a reasonable chance you might be able to surf it. Okay. My program and my exercises are designed to get you to learn to surf on the two-foot waves. So when the tsunami hits, you look down and say, what a beautiful ride I'm having. Right, right. This actually works because I have a coaching client whose business has dropped off the cliff as a result of the pandemic. You know, his uh, big corporate customers are not paying. There are items that he has shipped and they've, uh, oh, it's on the seas and they're refusing to take shipments. You know, his business has dropped off a cliff. Sure. And he's saying, isn't it a beautiful world? What a set of problems I have to cope with now. So instead of being depressed, you know, he's energized. And he's yeah. doing what he needs to do with his company, but he's doing it from a spirit of, you know, what a wonderful challenge as opposed to, oh, my God, this happened to me. I've lost my savings and so on. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you're saying basically the the everything is really just an illusion. And even if you think you have control. The notion you have control is an illusion. Yeah. But is it some sort of illusion, even though it is an illusion, comforting some people? Despite it being a placebo effect, to know that, listen, like I may yeah. not really have control, but it's this helps me with other things. Feel it's there. There's no need to come to me. The people who come to me and my programs are persons who recognize that the foundation on which they built their life is unstable, mm -hmm. and they know it somehow internally, but they don't know how. Those are the persons. The person's willing to grow, to challenge the beliefs they've held their entire life. They're the ones who get a great deal out of my program. Sure, so sure. They're perfectly comfortable being where they are, and hey, that's fine. I'm not out there saying what I've got is the only way. I'm out there saying, look, what I've got is very powerful, and if you find your life isn't working for you, or if you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, look at what I have to say. And if not, God bless you. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of different different opportunities, different ways to to take control over your life. I mean, one thing that I, I forgot exactly who I heard this from, but one way, despite being an illusion, as you mentioned, is to find something in your daily life that you know you can be stable in. And that could be knowing that you can take... Um, uh, something consistent, like maybe taking your dog out for a walk or a hot bath that you're going to do during the nighttime, something that's consistent that you feel somewhat of a control despite not having control in other parts of your life. At least something that is so simple. It could be your own breath. It could be meditating, something that you have control over. 
exercise. Do something every day which you genuinely enjoy for its own sake. Brew yourself a cup of tea and go look at the sunset. Yes, definitely. Shukumar, um, you seem to be a very happy person internally. You know, we were just talking about despite all the things that are happening in the pandemic, you're having a ball right now. And uh, you, you've got something to clearly teach about the habits of happiness. Talk to us a little bit about some of the daily habits that you incorporate in your in your lifestyle that has led to greater amounts of gratitude, happiness, anything sure. around that that people right. can take. Let me. Uh, it's about time that I have to leave anyway. So let me share with you how you and everybody listening to this podcast can have a terrific day every day. It's really very simple, but despite the fact that it's simple. Don't let it fool you into thinking, oh, it can't work, it's too simple, it's, it's not that easy, and so on, because it is both simple and easy. The way to have a terrific day every day is to get up in the morning and decide you're going to have a terrific day. Most of us make the mistake of confusing two things with having a terrific day that have nothing to do with having a terrific day. And those these two things are Stuff should happen which I want to have happen. And stuff should not happen which I don't want to have happen. Stuff which I don't want to have happen could be things like I don't want my car battery to fail. Uh, I don't want to wake up and find that uh, my driveway is blocked with snow so it can't get out. That's all stuff that I don't want to have happen. But it happens. And there's stuff that you want to have happen, which doesn't happen. Your customer says the check is on the way and it should have arrived, but it hasn't. Your boss says that you're doing great and you should, you will be promoted, but he promotes somebody else. So, you know, stuff that should have happened doesn't. So most of us make the mistake of saying, confusing, having a terrific day with stuff should happen that I want to have happen, stuff should not happen that I don't want to have happen. We don't have control over either one of those. But they have nothing to do with whether or not you have a terrific day. That's the association you make, which is a terrible mistake. So if you're smart, and I like to think I'm smart, you get up in the morning and say, I'm going to have a terrific day. And I recognize that shit is going to fall small from the sky. And in my terrific day, I'm going to spend a couple of hours, allocate a couple of hours to cleaning up the shit that's inevitably going to fall. And I'll have a terrific time while I'm doing it. So I have a terrific time cleaning up the feces that drops from the sky. <laughs> it's I like that the way simple. that's put. Yeah. It's that yeah. simple to have a terrific day every day. I love it. It's a great ending to the conversation. Wonderful. So can I tell your uh, uh, listeners if they want more to come to my website? Of course. I was just about to ask, where can people learn more about you, Shukumar? Uh, they can learn uh, about me on my website. And if you're going to put it out, put a link to my website, please. It's www.therauinstitute.com. And if they want to email me, my email is srikumar, S-R-I-K-U-M-A-R dot Rao, R-A-O, at the Awesome. Awesome. Well, and if they I... go to the website and they click on join now, they, you know, register with me and they'll get my blog and they'll get information about my program. I don't barrage them with emails. They can unsubscribe at any time. 
but many persons find that my blogs are incredibly helpful and they can just go to my website and go to the blog section and read the previous blogs so they know what they're getting themselves in for. Cool, cool. Well, if you guys enjoyed my conversation with Shukumar, we highly recommend you check that out. Shukumar, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And you have a terrific day. And remember, you should have a terrific day every day. That's right. That's right. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Take care. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.